the opportunity as a songwriter to never be safe is an honor. If I had been one of the safe rock stars, I suppose I would have followed that trajectory of playing music about safety. And who needs that? Kristen Hirsch, though far too modest to agree with any such assessment, is one of the most influential musicians of her time. Kristen's first band, Throwing Muses, formed in Newport, Rhode Island in 1981. In the late 1980s, they had hit albums in the UK, featured regularly on the covers of music magazines, and were cited as an influence by a generation of alternative musicians. Kristen has also assembled a hefty solo catalogue, founded another band, 50 Foot Wave, and won acclaim as an author. Her latest book is Seeing Sideways, a memoir of music and motherhood. I'm Andrew Muller, and I spoke to Kristen Hirsch from her home on Rhode Island. Kristen Hirsch, welcome to The Big Interview. We will be discussing a lot uh, of a long and variegated career over the next half hour or so, but I wanted to start by asking not so much about where and why the band started, which is, is something you've chronicled in great detail in a previous book, Rat Girl, but I'm always interested in that point where for any band or any musician, it dawns on them that other people like them. Like that first time you start seeing people you don't know coming to your shows. Was there a moment where you actually just realised there's something going on here that people are relating to? Yeah. I remember being a teenager. We started playing out, I guess we were about 14, and thinking, what on earth are you people doing here? Honestly, I haven't really shaken that. I still don't know if anybody's going to show up. And my job is to kind of either look down or stare off into space and focus in some way, but not be focused on their external selves, but this song body that we're holding up together. And I was lucky enough to orient myself that way when I was 14. And I, I sort of knew the people who would show up and get it. And one of them was this... Mexican dude, big Hell's Angels guy, like twice the size of me, who came to just hear one song, and it was my most horrifying song, but it made him happy. And I, I kind of carry him <laughs> like a talisman. <laughs> it's like, all right, you can show horror as long as it's in musical form. And that dude with the, the bigger body than yours who can handle it will be there to help. Those are all themes and ideas that you do go back to repeatedly in, in the new book, Seeing Sideways. And I do want to talk about that. But before I talk about that, I want to ask now, because this is something that's varied um, over your career, your own understanding of where the songs come from. And at this point, I should probably disclose that it's now coming up for about 30 years, I realise, since the first time we met. I mean, that was a long <laughs> time ago, although, as you have already established, we did both start very young, so listeners need to bear that in mind. But at the time, you used to talk a lot about how you felt less like the author or composer of the songs than their conduit or their interpreter even, that the songs were just sort of delivered directly to you by outside entities of some sort or another. Is that still how it seems, or have you understood it better since then? My understanding of it is the same. In practice, it's different. I used to hear the songs, and that was spooky, and I don't like spooky. You know, I was a biology major, uh, and I grew up 
in a commune. So I like things to make sense and not be weird. And this was weird and the strangeness I resented, but my bandmates were there being very enthusiastic about the result. So I figured it was my responsibility to live through the strange and carry the strange. And so it was a, it was a long process of me learning not to be bossed around by it. And then that was suddenly ended when I was treated for PTSD and it revealed an alternate they're called. And in me, it was just music. It was, music was another part of me that I wasn't letting in and it had lived through all the traumas in my life. So my music was very, well, it was heavy. It was intense. I know that it's me and I'm more like the songs and I don't hear them anymore. I just know them. Other than that, it was right when it implied that it wasn't me because, you know, where else to go for music but humility to the low, to the visceral and love it because it's awesome. Let's talk a bit about the new memoir, Seeing Sideways, which I think it's fair to say is unusual in the annals of rock star memoirs, and I suspect it was intended to be such. It's not giving away any endings to suggest that only four characters appear in it by name. They are your four sons. It's not necessarily entirely chronologically structured, and I think it's deliberately quite vague about dates and places and people. Why decide to do that? Did you start out writing something more ordinary, if you like, or did this approach just come naturally? My first book sucked for about two years, Rat Girl. It was clever, and that's just the worst. But I knew I had to write it all down and then unclever it, get it to the, its dream. And that's where my books differ from other rock memoirs. They're like songs. I don't use English as conversational English. And some people uh, get all upset about that. <laughs> the peer reviews of this one. The poor people. I was like, dude, it's just words. Deal. <laughs> so like, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. And I'm upset. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. Okay, we'll stay there because that's, that's what the book is. <laughs> this is. I had to live it in order to tell it because I am my fingerprint, but I'm not going to tell you that I'm more important than you. So if you want to live it next to me, cool. But don't read about me. I, I wouldn't want my books to be that kind of a memoir, you know, and that would be the name. And that's why there aren't names in the book. So I will turn my back on my own nature and say, these people are more important than other ones. <laughs> these four people <laughs> that I am responsible for, I'm going to make that call. I'm going to live in the mess and say they're really important. <laughs> Those are my big names. <laughs> Is it as simple, though, as suggesting that, because there's some quite long, detailed and, in fact, very funny passages about what it was like when you, you ran up against the the rock star machine, which was seeking to use you for fuel. There was a point in the 90s at which there were people actually trying to make throwing muses and or you into a massive, massive deal. But was part of your lack of interest in that related to the fact that you had had a family really young and that that sort of prevented you from taking all this rock star stuff as seriously as less attached people might? It's unfortunate that we have diminished motherhood and 
children in this culture in favor of the tap dancing narcissist in the spotlight. The spotlight is bought and paid for, and it mimics attention. And that has absolutely nothing to do with music. It's very similar to uh, televangelism selling itself as spirituality. When we have prayer within our midst, every single one of us, we have music. I, I wish everybody would play their own music so that they couldn't be fooled. But if they could just have their own children and have that sort of Zen, that Buddhist bell going off all the time, look at life, look at life, be here, life is happening, it's not going to be sold to you. Like, really, you are not born to be the best shopper. And if music is sacrificed in that equation, if women are sacrificed in that equation, then yeah, I'm going to walk away. Who would I be if I put myself before my convictions? I would have enough money. I would have sustainability in my career. But I would have been part of the problem. Okay, well, on that note, let's undermine the case you've just made by playing a a cut from your, your debut solo album. This is from 1994's Hips and Makers, which actually was a genuine hit album this was top 10 in the uk and this is the single from it it's called your ghost if i walk down this hallway tonight it's too quiet so i pad through the dark and call you on the phone push your old numbers and let your house ring till i wake your ghost Let him walk down your hallway. It's not this quiet. That was your ghost from your solo album, Hips and Makers. Later in that track, of course, Michael Stipe appears doing backing vocals. Uh, at around that time, was there, if you looked at a band like R.E.M., who were more or less within Throwing Muse's general ambit, was there no part of what they were experiencing in the 90s that you looked at and thought, yeah, I'd like some of that? It would have been nice to be secure in my work, to know that I had another record I was allowed to make, but it wasn't worth sucking. And that was, it was made very clear to me that I was supposed to come up with product, meaning, you know, idiocy and lying and manipulation. And I was supposed to use my image to fool men, essentially, or to give women pointers on how to fool men. And I can't do that. And I also can't buy into the concept of fashion, which is not necessarily clothing. It's the, it's planned obsolescence. Were you one of those musicians then who ended up being kind of relieved by what happened in the early 2000s to the music business when when that old model to a large extent collapsed because you and Throwing Muses did find a way to continue that probably you wouldn't have been able to 10 or 15 years previously? That's true. That's a good point. I was waiting for that stupid Goliath to collapse and shatter And that in that shattering, you find your people because people want a soundtrack and they're not going to be listening to the same 10 bands that get marketing money behind them. This is an an effort on their part to listen cross-genre and era. I watch my kids move through time and 
they will listen to absolutely any style of music looking for substance. And obviously, some metal is awesome and some metal sucks. Some folk is awesome and some folk sucks. This is our opportunity. So, yeah, we are hungry and we will begin to see a more musically literate populace because music has been free in the ether for a while now. One thing I think it's fair to say that Seeing Sideways does have in common with other rock memoirs, there's a lot of really quite lovingly detailed um, accounts of just the kind of bizarre stuff that only happens basically to bands when they go on tour because it's such a weird thing to do. It It is basically inviting the universe just to do its worst, and the universe very often does. And for all the chaos you describe in the book, some of which really isn't funny at all, there's, you know, there's an actual shootout and a bus crash, and that wasn't just your bus, it was also your home. But was there part of you that actually just always enjoyed the touring part of it, however ludicrous it got? I love ludicrous. I mean, I hate it too, I suppose, but I only hate the ludicrous that people are responsible for. <laughs> Acts of God? That's just wild. And the opportunity as a songwriter to never be safe is an honor. If I had been one of the safe rock stars, I suppose I would have followed that trajectory of playing music about safety. And who needs that? This... This book was difficult in that, as you say, there are some passages that I found it really tough to relive. The bus crash is one of them because that was not just my home, but my children's home, my bandmates, and our livelihood, and music is as close to religion as I get. So I just lost, it felt like I lost everything in a day, and yet we lived. And my Son Wyatt in the hospital is another one that I found difficult to rewrite that passage because this was five or six years of writing this book and over and over and over and over again, you got to live these things and make sure that you're telling the truth and then spread them around and say like, is this how it happened? And sometimes you come up with, God damn it. Yeah. And then sometimes you think, well, right on. Who am I? Now I know what it's like. It's a counterintuitive sounding proposition, but is there any aspect in which taking an increasing number of children on tour actually makes touring kind of easier? Because there is also that aspect of touring that it just, whatever lofty intentions you pull out of the driveway with, it just totally infantilizes everybody on board. Um, if you have actual infants with you, does that kind of help at all? Yes, that's brilliant. <laughs> really good way of putting it and and yet the the infants are so much smarter than us and we're reminded of that every day they're the ones who know what we have forgotten but it was it was so enchanting to pull up at a club and see the door guy you know they're hired to look scary holding crayons and little raisin boxes and coloring books and because they're so happy to see the kids again and the kids remind them of what they have forgotten. So there's this, this circular breathing effect that is not unlike playing music itself when you circular breathe with the audience and say, look, I, none of us are really responsible for this, but let's, let's make it happen somehow and stop failing for an hour. <laughs> the kids are good at reminding you how to make that effective. Plus, you know, I didn't have the option of living that stupid story of boredom and 
drugs and like as you say like just being a big baby and uh you know not that I could have afforded the drugs they all whine about taking but <laughs> I was baking brownies on the bus and that puts you in a good headspace on that upbeat note another musical interlude this is your other band, I guess, is a way of putting it. This is 50-foot wave, which I think basically we're playing, so I get the excuse to say God's not a dick on our highfalutin fancy pants radio station. This is exactly that. That was 50-foot wave with God's Not a Dick. Um, Kristen, the sound of that does prompt me to ask a, a question about a line that appears in the book when you say, when you play, you disappear. And it is always something really striking about throwing muses and 50-foot wave, but throwing muses in particular, I have always genuinely thought were just one of the best live bands I ever saw, this absolutely enormous noise that you do sort of seem when you're on stage kind of zoning out in the middle of. Are you thinking anything at all at a moment like that, or is is it a complete um, self-abnegation? Yeah, I'm not there. I'm not there at all. Even now, uh, in, in the past, I was disappearing to the point where I had no memory of writing or playing the songs ever, even in the studio, because the whole point was disappearing. And I stood by that, and I'm sure you and I discussed it, but I don't think anyone heard that as so literally true. They heard it as a way to talk about art with a capital A, you know. And it's true, but I was not Kristen any longer. And and yet I have to admit, I, I, I was staying with a friend in London on the last music tour just a couple of years ago, and he said, I know you're supposed to be cured, but I have to tell you, you were disappearing up there. Your eyes were glassy, you weren't blinking, you weren't Kristen anymore. And I said, yeah, she's better at it than I am. That rat girl thing, that's a musician, what, it, what a musician really is. And I think Kristen is a little bit polite for that. I'm a nice lady, a really nice lady. <laughs> I have depth, but there's something about that that part of me that is much better at the free-for-all, the hurricane, and standing in the eye of it than Kristen is. And so, you know, when I'm tired at the end of a tour, she takes over. And I'm wondering now if maybe she should just be playing all the time. I mean, is that, I mean, to you, is that though kind of an ideal state? Because there's another line in the book where you talk about um, where electricians facilitating currents through their homes. And you also seem to talk about preferring something in the audiences. You make a distinction between fans and listeners. So listeners being people who hear the music, whereas fans who are people who take some sort of interest in you, 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 you feel a bit less comfortable with. 
Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, actually. The, the selflessness is necessary. And yet we have this business that says they are purveyors of music that sell the opposite. They sell this narcissistic, I don't know, they just like showing off. And I, <laughs> I take issue with that. Like, I don't think anyone who is distracted with the rewards, egoic rewards, like money and attention, I don't think they can play music. I think you have to lose yourself in order to do so. And anyone, absolutely anyone is capable of that. Except these rock stars who seem so weak to the other rewards. And the people who got that, I call listeners, who were there for the music, who took it on board as their own soundtrack. That For me, that was the highest honor. Fans are creepy. Fans, they could replace you with anything in a day. They, they just are waiting, you know, again, planned obsolescence. They're waiting for the next cool thing and they're going to wear it like decorator crabs. Like I put this band here and you can see it and I get points for it. And, you know, they'll do that with anything. It's virtue signaling. It's it's just too superficial for real music to really hit. So when they confused us with the the spotlight people, I, you know, I know right away. And it still does happen just less so because I don't impress them very much. They would like someone dark and whiny, someone who was acting kind of. They like acting. They like Broadway. <laughs> they like somebody saying, I am one-dimensional. Here you go. Here's my cartoon. I'm confusing that way. I'm, I think I seem kind of dopey, actually. <laughs> I'm so happy. We are, I think, coming towards, unfortunately, the end of our time. I do want to wrap up by asking, and this is no spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't yet read the book, but by the time you get to the end of Seeing Sideways, you, you do end up with a, a remarkably fully formed picture of the four boys around whom the book is structured. Now, I have the advantage, I think, of having met two of them. I think I met Dylan and Ryder, but a long time ago when they both would have been very small. In fact, I think at least one of them may have sat on my knee at one point, which is a terrifying thought because they're doubtless like a grown-up human being now. So can I ask, what are they basically all doing now? Dooney is a chef in New York. Ryder is a baker in New Orleans. Uh, Wyatt is an animator in New England, and Bodie is a surfer in California. That's a fairly healthy set of resumes at this point. <laughs> it's so confusing. I mean, if it weren't for the surfer and the animator, I would have just thought they were hungry. <laughs> I mean, have you ever asked them at all? And I realise that you rarely get a sensible answer from people out of this because basically whatever people grow up with just seems like normal to them and they think everybody else's upbringing was weird. But I think it's fair to say that their upbringing was a singular one. Have you, have you talked to them about how all those years on the road and in some circumstances living in a bus uh, may have formed the young men they've become yeah i mean i don't bring it up but it was definitely water to a fish they were so exposed to planet earth and protected from its darknesses what i would consider its darknesses they were incapable of any ism and spoke a bunch of languages but uh they had never really come up against 
the trauma of civilization. <laughs> they knew life as laughter and passion and love and adventure and, you know, the human stuff. There was still hunger and, you know, air that's difficult to breathe and danger, but they weren't exposed to the true darknesses. And that's what they had to face recently. And they all came to me and said, the world is not the bus, mom. And I said, well, yeah, that's why the bus. D did you not know that? <laughs> like, what do we do? And I'm like, well, go build your own bus, I guess. We will play you out shortly with a, a more recent Throwing Muses song. This will be Bo Diddley Bridge from uh, last year's Sun Racket. But just finally, finally, I know the last year and a bit has not been optimal times for people involved in playing and touring and writing and recording music. Um, what do you have coming up beyond this book? I am uh, in the studio making two records right now, a 50-foot wave record and a solo record. And uh, because I'm listener-supported, I work for a few weeks and then raise money and work for a few weeks and then raise the money, like making a film. And it's a, it's perfect for me. It's it's good MO because I don't let myself get away with anything. <laughs> and um, I'm working seeing sideways still because I couldn't do an actual physical book tour. And the though the virtual events were very touching, there's something about being in a bookstore with book people that is very much like the paper itself. I love the humanity of that, and I would uh, I would like to get back to that. But yeah, it's slow to wake up this new world. It is that. Kristen Hirsch, thank you for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Big Interview with me, Andrew Muller, in conversation with Kristen Hirsch. The Big Interview is produced by Emma Searle and edited by Steph Chungu. Don't forget to subscribe to this and any of our other programmes on Monocle24. They can be found on iTunes, Spotify or, of course, at monocle.com. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. <laughs>